All right, if you have a Bible with you, you can open to Ephesians chapter 6. But before we go there, I just want us to, to pause for a, a moment and, and really ask ourselves, what if you really believed what God says about himself and the world and even you right now, how might it change your emotions? How might it change how you feel about yourself, how you feel about others, and how you feel about the world? In the Bible, when it talks about worship and gathering to worship, one of the things that God says again and again is, I don't want your empty sacrifices. I don't want your bulls. I don't want your goats. I don't want you just showing up and going through the motions while in your heart you're, you're just not... You're just not there. You don't care. He says in one point, if you come to worship and you have something against your brother or sister, he says, leave your sacrifice at the altar and go and take care of that. And so I don't, I don't know why, but I just feel led for us to take a moment here and just pause and just reorient our hearts to the Lord because we will waste our time here if we're not present before the Lord. If we're not honest, that doesn't mean you've got to figure everything out right here in a second because that's impossible but it, it does mean that you can at least say to God I'm not here right now or you can at least say to God I'm I'm irritated at you God or irritated at this other person help me help me now to to receive your grace let's reflect father we thank you that you are present with us may we be fully present with you in Jesus name amen well, I know pretty much all of us in here have been tracking through this series together, and so we won't waste our time with a lot of introduction, but just to be reminded that we're looking in these three weeks leading up to Christmas about the reality of the fact that we are at war, and that sometimes we look at Christmas just through a, a sentimental lens, just through maybe a self-serving lens, and, it, and I'm all about sentimentalism. Just ask, ask my wife and my family. I love it. I love all of it. Rudolph Red-Nosed Reindeer, favorite Christmas movie. So I'm not trying to, to negate any of that, but the reality of this season as we reflect on Jesus coming into the world, he doesn't enter into a mall, he enters the world to a manger, to a stable. And it is in the backdrop of this war that has been going on from the time of the beginning. And so as we read today, we're going to continue to think about that in view of the armor of God. So Ephesians 6, 13 through 20. Actually, I'm going to start at verse 10. You don't have it up here just to set the context from last week. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now to verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. 
and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Father, we ask you now that you would bless the reading of your word. We pray, God, that your truth would set us free today wherever we're bound, wherever we're stuck, wherever we even prison maybe ourselves. We pray that you would free our, our minds, our hearts, our wills, so that we might be faithful followers of Jesus in the stuff of everyday life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When my youngest brother was going through a basketball sort of phase in his life, I bought him the most expensive present that I've ever bought for anyone other than my wife. And so I remember I went and I said, I want to find him just this great basketball goal. It wasn't the best one in the world, but it, it, was, over, it was over $200, I remember. And I was in college or something, I was like, I want him to have this. And so I sacrificed, saved, and bought it. There it was, Christmas morning. See, I told you guys I was sentimental. And, and he was like, thanks. Not totally the, the response that I wanted. But, but this phase ended not long thereafter. And instead of something that he took seriously, it was something uh, that was not taken seriously at all. And I just remember his buddies coming over, and because you could lower it, them just basically trashing it. And you know, doing the classic thing, dunking on it and being silly. And it probably wasn't a few months or several months later until it was just laying down in the pasture at my parents' house. Because, you know, that's what all good people like we do is if it's broke, don't throw it away. Just go throw it out in the pasture somewhere and stare at it. And so it is there to this day. And so if you were to work, walk down on the other side of my, my dad's literal woodshed, and look to that side, you would see this basketball laying there, basketball go laying there. And I, every time I walk by it, I'm kind of stung a little bit. Kind of stung that, you know, you, you want to, I wanted to equip my brother to be able to pursue his dream, at least at that time. And there it was. And, and that, that's not super serious, and I need to get over that. But uh, what is super serious is that our, our father... Our God who loves us has given us some amazing gifts and resources to equip us to not just endure a phase well, but actually to survive a war that we're a part of. Not just survive in it, but to actually be a part of his kingdom that is advancing now through this world, taking the gospel to every individual, to every man, woman, and child in our cities, in our country, in our nation. But we, if we're honest, what we often do is we take that lightly. We take it in a trivial fashion. And the gifts that he's given us probably maybe have just been put in the closet or they're laying out in the pasture. So let's think a little bit out loud as we do each week getting started. What does it look like? 
what does it look like for us to act as if the armor of God, these gifts that God has given us, what does it look like for us to not take those serious, to disregard those, or to ignore that they're even there? said, taking the Bible, reading it as if it's a chore, right? Not a sword. Just something to feel guilty about. What else? If, if you, if we see here this, this, these words that we've looked at last week as well, to stand firm and then to stand therefore, is, is there's this urgency when we read through the scriptures. There's this urgency in the life of Jesus. There's this urgency really surrounding Christmas in, in the story of the Bible. And it's not an urgency, you know, primarily like me, you know, you waited last minute to buy gifts, right? There's an urgency to go get this done. In the Bible, there's this urgency to live a life that is alert to the fact that we all are standing against an ancient, evil, personal villain that is out to destroy us. And if he can't destroy us, he at least wants to distract us, to discourage us, to divide us, to depress us, so that we won't focus on keeping others from the destruction that he is about. But the good news is, is we all don't have to sit here and kind of just feel guilty, you know, just, you know, just self-loathing and our guilt and shame because we're not taking it seriously. What God wants us to do is to take our eyes off of all that that the enemy wants to use to condemn us and accuse us. He wants to put our eyes on Jesus, and he wants us to see that God has given us all that we need from his grace and for his glory to actually fight this battle. That we have all we need to get up off the couch and engage this enemy. One commentator says it this way, John Stott, Wobbly Christians who have no firm foothold in Christ are an easy prey for the devil. And Christians who shake like reeds and rushes cannot resist the wind when the principalities and powers begin to blow. And Paul wants us to see, wants to see Christians that are so strong and stable that they can remain firm even against the devil's schemes. Even in, as it says in our text, the evil day. In the time of special pressure that we face. 
But to, for us to have such stability, we have to arm ourselves with the complete or the whole armor of God. And so hope for today, for me, for all of us, is that the armor of God doesn't become like this sort of graphic we may have seen in Sunday school at some point in our life. But we get up every morning in our lives and we walk through our days and we are ready to access and use this armor that God has given us so that we can stand against the attack of the enemy. So how do we put on the armor of God? The first is we have to put it on for protection versus the enemy. So we see in verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God. The armor of God, as we talked a little bit last time, is merely uh, this, this image that Paul is taking both from Isaiah, where it speaks about God's power, about God's attributes, and about God's righteousness that he gives to his people to actually represent him and to actually stand against the enemy in the power and position we have in him. So Paul's accessing that, but Paul also, if we know what's going on in Ephesians, is he's writing from an imprisoned situation. He would have been in close proximity to a Roman soldier, and he would have been looking at that Roman soldier's armor. And what Paul did and what we need to do is he saw everything in view of, in his life and everything in view of the gospel. So whatever he's looking at, He's, he's making these connections, and he's thinking, how can I take those connections and further help myself grow in a walk with Christ and help others do the same? And this first thing that he tells us about is to fasten on the belt of truth. Now, the belt in, the, in the, the garb of the Roman soldier or soldiers of that day, the belt is what would have sort of held things together. So we're going to talk about breastplate. We're going to talk about sword. What, what is it that keeps all this stuff from just from, from being intact and from not falling apart? It was the belt. To fasten the belt of truth. Truth is important. We live in a world that wants to tell us you can't even know truth. This is one of the enemy's greatest tactics. When Paul is talking here about this belt of truth, I believe he's talking in two different ways. The first thing is the content of the truth. If we're to stand against the enemy, then we must fasten ourselves with the truth, capital T. That it's true regardless of how you feel. It's true regardless of how you think. It's true regardless of what culture you grew up in. It's true regardless of which part of the world that you live. It's true regardless of what story that you inhabit. It's true regardless of you, or it's meaningless. There's a truth that will stand no matter what the enemy says to you. No matter what flaming, fiery darts he sends into your life, no matter what situations you face, there is a truth. But it's not just the content of truth, it's the character of truth. For many, there are many people who believe in a set content of truth that God has given us, but it can't just be true regardless of you for you to be able to face the enemy. It actually has to be true for you. Or it's a weightless belt. Like, it's got to be true for you. It can't just be like, yeah, I know that's true. But you know, I really don't know if I believe it. I really don't know if it's connected to my character. If all you have is a content of truth without a character of truth... And you're easy prey. 
because it's that belt of truth that will hold all these things together that you, you, you just know this is true regardless of me, but this is also true for me. Not only the belt of truth, but the breastplate of righteousness. So the breastplate would have protected the, the heart, the vital organs. Some have said that the breastplate was only on, on the front, but really in historical studies it, it likely was front and back. So it would protect you from a frontal attack, it would protect you from a rear attack. And what it is, it's the breastplate of righteousness. And again, in two directions. First of all, we're talking here about Christ's righteousness, Jesus' righteousness. A righteousness that has nothing to do with anything that we've done, but everything to do about what Christ has done and how now that is ours through our union with Him. As the enemy comes against us, we saw last week one of his primary schemes is accusation. He wants to accuse you. He wants to tell you your, your sin defines you. He wants to tell you that guilt is what you must live with. He wants to make you think that's a sign of your spiritual maturity, how guilty you feel. And if everyone else was as mature as me, they would all feel this guilty. And if they're not as guilty as me, then they must not take the truth as seriously as I do. He wants to come at us with shame. He wants us to feel not only that we've not done enough, but that we are not enough. This is why we've got to suit up every day, breastplate of righteousness. Who I am is rooted in who Jesus is and what he has done. There is a righteousness, as the reformers said, outside of me. An alien righteousness. It's here. And it doesn't matter how I feel or what's going on inside here or here or even here. This is my righteousness. It's Christ. He is my hope. And when the enemy's accusations come, you can say, Satan, yeah, that's, that's probably pretty true of me, maybe. I don't know. But look, this is, who, this is where I'm found in Christ. But out of Christ's righteousness flows our personal righteousness. Because it's not only in, the enemy comes at us with accusations and condemnations, but the enemy comes at us with temptations. And to grow against the enemy and his attacks, we not only need to point to Christ's righteousness, but we need to connect ourselves with Christ's righteousness. We need to grow in a righteousness that is ours, that is lived, that is transforming us. And as we do that, the enemy's attacks, they lose their appeal. It's as if we create a, a new set of taste buds for our lives. That once we, we looked, as it were, a food, once we looked at that deep dish pizza, and we could just say, I'd do anything I could get to get my hands on that. And then you look over here at the apple, and you're like, ooh, apple. But the more you resist the deep dish pizza, and you you eat the apple, the more the apple, your, your taste buds adjust. I've heard this is true. I need to do this. But I, I, I have experienced this in other ways. You're, you adjust. You begin to not only do it by faith, but you, you do it because it actually is something you enjoy. The enemy does not want to see us do that. The enemy does not want us to look at God's law, to look at God's commands and say what the psalmist says. It's beautiful. Your way is beautiful. 
I don't have to do this. I get to do this. And so we also put on the shoes of the gospel of readiness. Verse 15, and shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So uh, again, historians say this would have been the Roman sort of half boot. So you've seen these pictures where they wear the, the big ones, but the specific word here is the smaller one, particularly to be agile, to be ready to battle, to be ready to fight, to be ready to move. That's why the word here accented is readiness. Readiness. And this goes along with what we say all the time, is that the gospel here is not just for our past. The gospel is not just for our future. The gospel is also for our now. And we're to be ready to move. We're to be equipped. God's given us the gospel so that we can stand. So that we can dig our heels in. So when the enemy's coming, what are we using? How are we standing? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the good news. It's why we, we drill and rep, and we'll talk about this in a minute, these questions. Who is God? What has he done? Who am I? What if I believe this? It's because that's the gospel. That's where we stand. But it's also how we dodge. Right? So if we're thinking of these feet moves here, right? You got the gospel stand, you got the gospel dodge. And somebody who can do choreography in here, you could come up maybe with even a gospel dance for this. The enemy's coming, right? Muhammad Ali, just think, right? I can't say everything he said. I can't remember it. My mind went blank, right? Move like a butterfly, sting like a bee. This is what we got to get. What, how, how do we get moving like that? When the enemy's coming against us, when we're facing Mike Tyson, as it were, and, he, and we're just scared to death, right? He's either going to punch me in the face or bite my ear off, right? But he's coming. How do I move? We've got to get the gospel in our feet. It's got to be how we stand. It's got to be how we move. It's got to be how we live. It can't just be an idea on a shelf. It's got to be in our feet. Also, the shield of faith. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Flaming darts, image, right? They had these shields. These shields would have protected them. And sometimes the enemy would dip their arrows in pitch and light them on fire and shoot them. You've all seen this on these medieval movies, right? Here come these flaming arrows. And they're a lot worse than just the regular arrows. They're not only going to hit you and kill you potentially, but even if they miss you, they can set things on fire around you. I have to remember, the enemy might know you're going to be ready for this, but if he could shoot over you and start a fire around you and trap you. Realize, Satan is patient. He's willing to play the long game and get you 20 years from now. He's willing to make you think, ah, oh, this little compromise, this little giving in, this little, this little whatever, it's not a big deal. And he's just shooting these darts. 20 years from now, you look around, you're surrounded. The shield of faith is what protects us from the immediate hit and the long game of the enemy. Because what faith is talking about is having a, a trust beyond what you can see. The enemy plays to our senses. It's back to the garden, right? Eve saw that the fruit was good to her eyes 
He plays to what we can feel, taste, touch, and see. And he seeks to manipulate those good gifts from God. Our senses aren't bad. Our physical reality isn't bad. But what he does is he takes what is good and he wants us to make those good things into God's. That's why we must have faith. We must believe beyond what we can see sometimes. We must believe beyond what we, what we feel. If we can't do that, the enemy's got us. If we're always reacting off of our immediate sensual gratification, then we're taking this bait that has a deep hook. We take up the shield of faith because our Savior calls us to deny ourselves take up our cross and follow him and ever how much we want to sanitize that that takes faith the enemy wants us to indulge ourselves, take up our couch and follow him also the helmet of salvation take the helmet of salvation helmet would have would have guarded the head obviously the brain the mind but also these helmets would have, would have given vision. So you would have this security that I'm protected here, but I also can see. I also can navigate this. The enemy can't get us through the heart, through the flaming dart. He can get us through the mind, through the lies. And again, it's the helmet of salvation. All of these so connected to the gospel. You know, we talk about salvation. It's not just a salvation that we've received, going to receive in the future, in the past, but we say we have been saved, the Bible teaches. By grace, Ephesians, you have been saved. You've been saved from the penalty of sin to become the dearly beloved children of God. But the Bible also says we are being saved, 1 Corinthians 15. We are being saved from the power of sin so that we might live in the power of the Spirit. The Bible also says, 1 Peter 2, 4, we will be saved from the presence of sin so that we might enjoy God forever. The enemy does not want our heads to be filled with such hope because such a hope keeps us persevering when we'd rather just check out and detach. Such a vision of the gospel of salvation as bigger than just a prayer that you prayed or a place that you will go will affect how you listen to people today, will affect how you love people tomorrow. But the last piece in this armor of God, the sixth piece, is the sword of the Spirit. And again, some, some say there's always different views on this, but this sword uh, what, wouldn't, wouldn't be what we typically think of maybe when we think of a big sword, but the word behind this is the short sword. Maybe like a dagger. And it was used for these close encounters. So if I'm thinking these war movies or these medieval Braveheart type movies, you know, you've got the back, you know, you're shooting the arrows. That's a good sound effect. And then, and then the next, out of arrows or old war movies, guns, right now we're out of bullets, so now we got to go to the sword or the bayonet. But then when it gets real nitty gritty, it's this, all of a sudden, it's just like a street brawl. And they're taking out, you know, there's just too much going on for all this big stuff. It's time for the, this guy right here. This is the image that we're giving. This is close encounter warfare. 
We just got to feel this. We don't want to acknowledge this. This is what the, en- the enemy wants us, like we said last week. He wants us to act like it's not that serious. But it's this image of the Word of God is so, it's just, it's just right there. It's ready for these close little attacks. It's not, it's not saying only, although it's good, to spend extended time in God's Word each day. We need to do that. But this is saying you're ready at any point, right? You're ready. You're just walking around knowing the enemy's there. And this is not merely how you defend yourself, but how you take the offense. We think of Jesus in the wilderness. He's having this direct con- confrontation with Satan. And if, Jesus, if Satan will come after Jesus, I don't know who we are to think that he's going to leave us alone. But how does Jesus, how does Jesus do spiritual warfare? Right? We're followers of Jesus. We're disciples. How does he do it? He takes the word of God to the enemy. But what the enemy tries to do, if you go and read Matthew chapter 4, is he distorts God's word. The enemy will use God's word against you. The enemy will say, just as he did in the garden, did God really say? Or didn't God say this? We have got to be ready, filled with God's word. But the direct application here, again, is not to the Word of God as the Bible as we know it, but it's the Gospel of God. It's this good news that we've shared in connection with every piece of the protective armor that we're giving, is that we know how to wield the Word as good news. As good news. This is what we mean by gospel fluency. Is that when the Satan takes God's Satan takes God's word, he wants to use it against us, right? Remember, we said last week he likes to accent God's love or grace so that we he leads us into sin, and then once we get into sin, then he wants to accent God's judgment and condemnation. We've got to have God's word ready to combat that. We've all got to be people in here who get really good at talking to ourselves. As crazy as that might sound. We're all already talking to ourselves anyway. Right? But we, we've got to be pros at that. We've got to be able to speak the gospel to our hearts. But this takes the equipping of the armor of God. It takes training and using the armor of God. And that takes work. Nobody, the, the armies of the world don't just say, Hey, do you want to be in the army? And then they send you out to battle. No, there's things like boot camp. There's little 5 a.m. runs. There's simulated training. This is, this is what we mean when we talk about discipleship. This is why we gather on Sundays. This is why we live in Moon Sea. This is why we have fight clubs. It's not so that those things are the end. It's so that through those things, we are equipped then to go into everyday battle in our lives, equipped with the armor of God, speaking the gospel to our hearts and into the lives of others. These days, we spend our Saturdays watching our boys play basketball. And when you're watching little kids play basketball, it's quite hilarious. And can you guess, what, what when you're talking about 8-year-olds to 10-year-olds playing basketball, what do they all want to do? Take a guess when they play. Shoot, right? They just want to shoot. They want to do something spectacular. 
They want to have an awesome move or an awesome shot and be able to turn up to the crowd or feel like they're better than everyone. You know what they don't want to do? Guess. Pass? But really what they don't want to do, yeah, they don't want to pass. They don't want to play defense. I mean, none of them want to, like, do this, right? That's no fun. But anybody that knows anything about basketball or any sport for that matter, defense is what wins games. In basketball, defense, rebounding, not turning the ball over, and hitting your free throws. If you have a team that hits their free throws, doesn't turn the ball over, gets the rebounds, and plays good defense, they're just usually going to win. But who wants to practice those? Especially when you're eight years old. It's fundamentals. But if we're honest, even as mature adult Christians that we are, we don't want to practice fundamentals. We want the big experience of community that you could make a video out of. And guess what? That type of community only happens when you show up with the armor of God over and over again. We want these big whirlwind experiences with God. Where we feel His closeness like we've never felt it before. It's just not going to happen if we're not showing up before God in our schedules and in our everyday lives equipped with the armor of God. You see, the enemy is very content for us to have occasional experiences with God as long as we don't experience an everyday, life-giving, God-glorifying, transforming relationship with Jesus. He doesn't want us to have a truth that actually can combat the lies and hold our lives together. He doesn't want us to take on the breastplate of righteousness. He'd rather us take on the works of religion, the acts of rebellion. He doesn't want us to know the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. He wants us to see God's Word again as, as it's just this textbook, not a sword. But legalism won't beat the enemy. Intellectualism won't beat the enemy. Mysticism won't beat the enemy. But only the word of the gospel. And what's pretty neat about all of these words and how this is phrased is they're all put in the plural. It's not really saying you take up individually the armor of God. This is a word to the church. If Paul was from Tennessee, this would have been translated y'all take up the armor of God. He wants us to take this up together. As we think what it looks like to be a healthy church, to be healthy missional communities, to be healthy fight clubs, then, and it's, I mean, especially relevant to that phrase, fight club, is he wants us to be asking ourselves, how are we doing in line of these six things? How are we doing as a church? How are we doing as an MC? How are we doing as a fight club? Are we, are we putting on the armor of God together? Are we trying to go out and fight this enemy by ourselves? That's not God's design. 
Or are we surrounding ourselves with all that God has given us? Because what the enemy wants us to do is whatever you're wrestling with, whatever sin you're being tempted with and engaging with right now, he wants you to wait five years from now before you share it with anybody. Or ten years from now. Or twenty years from now. And usually what happens in the life of Christians or the church is they have the, all these inner doubts, all these inner confusions, all these inner temptations, and they just, they just wrestle with them by themselves. And then they make an announcement five years later, I'm leaving the faith. Or they make an announcement 15 years later, I, I hate my spouse, and I've hated them for 15 years. We've never had a good marriage. Well, you, nobody ever said anything. <laughs> You know, or you wait 15 years later and you say, I've struggled with this, this issue of lust. And now I'm saying it defines who I am. It's my identity. And now you have to decide, do you accept me or not? We have to take up the armor of God together for protection. And then just two quick things, and I'm being sincere these things are essential as we do it with prayer with prayer Paul connects this using this phrase very directly some people even say this is the seventh piece of the armor most don't but some do because right he goes right at the sword of the spirit which is the word of God no new sentence praying at all times in the spirit when do we pray we pray at all times because the war never stops the war never stops you might have a spouse that told you not to call them at work, but you don't have a God who's told you not to call them at work. God is saying, please, you can't do this without me. How do we pray? We pray in the Spirit. There are other ways to pray, and I'm sure we've all experienced them. I know I have. We just pray because you feel like you're supposed to. You just pray like a grocery list you're eating off. No, to pray in the Spirit is to pray present, submitted, with God. How long are we to pray? How are we to pray? With perseverance, being alert. Jesus told his disciples, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. For whom are we to pray? For ourselves and for others. When we think of prayer, we've got to start thinking more in terms of warfare. For some of us, prayer is just boring, if we're honest. It's boring because we're not being honest before God. It's boring because we're going over this list of things that really is not where our hearts are at. It's something we feel like we have to schedule because it's something divorced from the battleground that we face. As we think through things like this warfare, no doubt what the enemy wants all of us in here to say is to lighten up. Some will say such a, a view of all-out life for God will lead to a poverty theology, a theology of defeatism, or if you want to use fancy words, an under-realized eschatology, or you're not, ex you're not experiencing all of the, the glory of what life is for you now and having all the blessings that God wants you to claim in your life. But God's word expressly says we are at war. Whether we realize it or not. And we're to pray in view of that. 
One person says, I do not tire of saying to the church, the number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that they try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you believe that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. It is through the field commander, Jesus, who's called the troops, given us a, a crucial mission. And he's handed each of us this personal transmitter coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters. And he said, comrades, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished. And through these transmitters, if you stay true to his mission and seek his victory first, he will always be as close to you as your transmitter to give tactical advice and to send an air cover when you or your comrades need it. He goes on, but what have millions of Christians done? They have stopped believing we are at war. No urgency, no watching, no vigilance, no strategic planning, just easy peacetime and prosperity. What do they do with the walkie-talkie? They tried to rig it up as an intercom in their cushy houses and cabins and boats and cars not to call in firepower for conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask the maid to bring another pillow to the den. So my first point is that if we are going to mobilize a powerful prayer movement, then we must not domesticate prayer from what it was created to be, a wartime walkie-talkie. This is certainly how Paul said it, as he said, to pray in view of the armor and to pray for the proclamation of the gospel to go forward, that he would proclaim it boldly, though he was in chains. As we close today, I just want us to hear the Spirit through the Apostle Paul, not giving, again, the Ephesians, a, again, a, a picture of armor that's cute. But I want you to imagine this, this man, the Apostle Paul, literally potentially chained to a Roman soldier while he writes this. Feeling the privilege but also the responsibility to be an ambassador. And to realize that you are ever bit as much sent as he was to the gospel. But as we realize it and we feel that call, we need not put our eyes mainly on Paul or ourselves, but on Christ. We need to realize that Jesus did not enter this world that first Christmas primarily to give us a good example. But he came to give us redemption. He didn't merely come to give us weapons and say, hey, let's see if we can defeat this enemy. He came to defeat this enemy for us. And right now you may feel the Spirit may be convicting you, but what the enemy wants to do is to take the conviction of the Spirit and make it into accusation. And one way you can tell the difference between the Spirit's conviction versus the enemy's accusation, which sometimes sound the same, is because only the Spirit leads you to Jesus. 
The Spirit never leaves you with your guilt, shame, or fear, but He takes you to the cross. He takes you to the place where Jesus said, I'm not here to just leave you to yourself or to Satan. I'm here to rescue you. I didn't come because you had it all together, because you were so alert, because you were so vigilant. I came because you're not. And I paid the price for your comfort idolatry. I paid the price for your performance idolatry. But I'm risen from the grave so that now you can go and live this. But you don't have to buy the lies. I've risen from the dead to give you all of these gifts. Truth, righteousness, faith, the word, and all the parts of the armor of God. And only by taking them up will we be able to stand. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that though we uh, treat life so lightly that he came and lived it to the full in our place. And thank you that though we are surrounded by enemies, that if we would just open our eyes, we would see that those enemies are surrounded by your armies. And that it's you that fight our battles. And that in the presence of our enemies, you have prepared a table so even today, as we come to your table, Lord, may we come knowing the victory is ours, that it is finished. In Jesus' name, amen.